Welcome to True Crime Works, a true crime podcast. This is episode 18, The Worst Ways to Die, part one. Hey everyone, welcome back to True Crime Works, a true crime podcast. This is season three of the podcast, and I'm really excited that you are joining me for season three. I have a lot of fun and exciting cases planned, and I really look forward to sharing them with you. I also wanted to say thank you for being patient with me while I went into a break for season three, right after season two. It was kind of unexpected, but work just got kind of crazy, and I really wanted to provide you with the best content, so I just decided to take a break and wait for season three. So thank you for your patience with that. I know sometimes life just gets in the way. So like I said earlier, this is going to be a two-parter, and this is about the worst ways to die. So it's kind of a different type of episode, but there is a lot of crime in this. So I'm going to talk about some of the worst ways to die and provide examples on all of them. Now, usually when you think about the worst way to die, you think about something like drowning or getting shot, but there's actually way worse ways out there, and that's what I'm going to get into, and you've probably never heard of some of these either, like I haven't before I started researching this. Before I get started, I wanted to issue a trigger warning for this episode. This episode contains extreme content, including descriptions of death, imagery of violence and death, and just extreme content in general. If you are sensitive to hardcore violence and death, you may want to skip this episode. It may not be for you. These are in no particular order. The first way to die that I'm going to get into is death by blunt force trauma or beating. Now, you've definitely heard of this one, but you probably don't realize just how terrible it is. Death by beating or blunt force trauma is one of the more cruel and horrendous, and that's because of the length it takes for the victim to die and also the severe pain that the victim experiences while dying. It can be very slow. The body can take a lot of punishment before it succumbs to death. Death only comes about when the organs are first bruised, then they burst from repeated blows. The brain swells within the skull but has nowhere to go. The victim would experience shock, unconsciousness, and then, finally, death. Now I'm going to provide you an example of death by blunt force trauma or beating. And I'm going to warn you, this does involve a child. Jessica Carson was the young mother of an infant girl named Amora. They lived together with Carson's boyfriend, Blaine Malam. He was 20 years old. On December 2nd, 2008, The couple returned home from a quick trip down to the pawn shop to find 13-month-old Amora in full rigor mortis. Emergency workers would find the infant bruised and bloodied, but it was the bite marks that ravaged her young defenseless body head from toe that stood out. They were so extensive that the couple first tried to explain them away by saying they were caused by an attack of the family dog. But it wasn't the family dog. It was Blaine Malone. It all started after Blaine had been drinking. He started playing with little Amora, and this would turn into roughhousing, which then turned into torture. 
For some reason, he found it amusing to toss the baby up into the air but not catch her, allowing her body to hit the floor or anything else that was in the way. He threw her hard enough for her to hit the ceiling on the way up and sometimes the fan. There wasn't an inch of her body that was not bruised or battered. Amora had spiral fractures to both an arm and leg. Spiral fractures occur when a limb is torqued around on itself. Her tiny limbs were twisted until they snapped. She was hit over the head with a hammer, opening holes through her cranium and into her brain. The beating left bloody gaping holes in her skull. The trauma was so great that it caused the retinas in her eyes to detach. The greatest injuries were not the bite marks or the blunt force trauma, but the injuries to her genitals and anus stemming from a violent sexual assault. Detectives believe she was raped with a bloody pipe wrench found hidden beneath the bedroom floor, along with bloodstained clothes that belonged to Blaine. The first thing noticed by the medical examiner who conducted Amora's autopsy were the bite marks. He counted more than 20 that began at her feet and went all the way up to her face. Severe enough to rip, tear, and bleed. While all of this was going on, Jessica Carson, the baby's mother, was in the room next to them, and she said she was sick and did not feel well, and she did nothing to intervene. She heard the child scream, but failed to do anything to help her. And then she lied to protect her boyfriend at the expense of her own child. During her 911 call to emergency services, Jessica claimed to return home to find Amora in the bloodied and battered state, and she just had no idea how it happened. She is heard on the call weeping, and she says she performed CPR on the infant. Detectives would soon find many cracks in Jessica's stories and explanations that just weren't adding up. When pressed by authorities, Jessica said that the family dog probably attacked her daughter. Detectives still were not buying her story. So then Jessica said that Amora must have gotten her hands on the hammer and beat herself. So she said that an infant beat herself with a hammer and just did not stop. Jessica was not done lying. She offered another story in hopes that it would turn authorities to look at another suspect instead of her or her boyfriend. During this confession, she said that her and Blaine used an Ouija board to contact his deceased father. This led to a demon escaping and attaching itself to Amora. She told the detectives that Satan himself had attached himself to Amora's soul and that if she didn't allow Blaine to kill her, Amora's soul would be trapped in hell forever. They attempted an exorcism to rid themselves of the evil forces, and Amora died during the ceremony. After that explanation did not work, Jessica switched her defense to the battered woman syndrome. She told investigators that she was afraid of her boyfriend, and she was so much under his control the night Amora was murdered, she was unable to do anything to help her daughter. This did not work. She was charged with the first-degree murder of Amora. After being found guilty, she was then sentenced to life in prison. Blaine Malam was also charged with first-degree murder. 
His defense team would argue that his IQ was not high enough where he could understand what he was doing or the consequences of his actions. However, the prosecutors fired back that Blaine knew enough to hide the evidence of his crime. And he was found guilty and would receive the death penalty for his part in the torture of Amora Carson. He currently sits on death row in Rusk County, Texas. He was scheduled to be executed on January 21st, 2021, and I couldn't find anything that said that this did not happen, so I think that he was executed on January 2021, but I couldn't find anything definitive one way or the other. Another of the worst ways to die is death by nuclear radiation. If you have never heard of the ant-walking alligator people, these are the unfortunate survivors of the nuclear bombs dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, Japan, that led to the end of World War II. The bombs, codenames Fat Man and Little Boy, were the first nuclear bombs ever created, as well as the first to be used against other humans in acts of aggression. They were used after Japan dropped bombs on Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, hitting several American warships, killing 2,403 Americans and destroying or damaging 19 ships in an attack that was unprovoked. The cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki were deemed as target-rich environments, and they were heavily populated areas. U.S. intelligence revealed that Japanese civilians would fight alongside their military counterparts to the last man, woman, and child to support their country. So the U.S. believed that the use of nuclear weapons on both civilian and military populations was justified for this reason, which is really, really sad. The bombs were dropped in the morning as people were leaving their homes to go to work or to go to the store to buy food for the day. A great light filled the sky and a sound that could flatten buildings rolled across the country. Two-thirds of the population, 80,000 people, died instantly. Those who survived the blast had no idea what had happened and were brutally mutilated in the bombings. Their faces literally melted off into a black leathery mask. The reference to the ant people was a reference to their horribly blackened skin, which bore no resemblance at all to human flesh. They could no longer see and had no idea what had happened to them or to the world. They just stumbled around in agony. Other people were too afraid to interact with them, or to put them out of their misery. So they just stumbled around. Imagine being a young Japanese mother leaving your home on a sunny morning with your baby for a stroll to the shops or the park. Suddenly, your face is melted, you're in agony, and you have absolutely no idea what happened. All that remained was a red hole where your mouth had been. One witness would say, quote, when the sky exploded, they had the misfortune to survive, end quote. These people would camp on the outskirts of Hiroshima, shunned by other survivors. The real horror was the sound that they made. Someone described it as, quote, 
The alligator people did not scream. Their mouths could not form sounds. The noise they made was worse than screaming. They uttered a continuous murmur, like locusts on a summer night. One man, staggering on charred stumps of legs, was carrying a dead baby upside down. End quote. Faces turned toward the blast. All skin was seared, leaving a black, leathery substance without eyes or features. They had once been human. None of them survived for long. But that is an absolutely terrifying way to die. And also so sad at the same time. The next worst way to die is death by evisceration. Evisceration is disembowelment or removal of the internal organs, especially those in the abdominal cavity. Suzanne Collins was a female Marine stationed at a naval base in Shelby County, Tennessee. She was dressed in red jogging shorts, a white t-shirt, and a blue exercise belt. She went jogging out one evening to let off some steam. She passed two other Marines who were also jogging at around 11 p.m. She had blonde hair, blue eyes, and a striking figure. The two took note of her and followed her as she ran the street. Shortly after she passed them, they noticed a car parked on the side of the road with its engine running and its high beams on. It had a very loud muffler. The two Marines watched as the car suddenly took off, headed in the same direction as Suzanne, until it was out of sight. Several minutes later, the two men thought they heard screams coming from somewhere behind them, so they turned around and ran in that direction. Before they could identify the source of the screaming, it had stopped. The men also stopped and listened, taking stock of the situation as they looked around at their surroundings. They saw the same car with the loud muffler pull out onto the road in front of them and leave the area. They just had this bad feeling about the car, and they believed that in some way it could be responsible for the screaming that they heard. So they went after it and chased it until it sped away. And this left them panting on the street because they were running. The men continued on until they reached a gatehouse at an entrance to the base. They reported the incident to the guard on duty, who called base security, and reported a possible abduction. The guard remembered the car and the driver. In fact, the car left the base through his gate just moments before. He recalled that he had his arm around a woman in the passenger seat. He issued a be-on-the-lookout alert to the base security, along with one to the area's sheriff's department and the local police. They realized that the woman that he was with may have been abducted. And unfortunately, the woman was Suzanne Collins. Suzanne's roommate noticed that her bed had not been slept in around the same time she failed to report for the morning. At around 6 a.m., sheriff's deputies found her nude body lying face down in the grass under a tree in Edmund Orgel Park, which was close to the base. A large tree limb had been brutally forced between her legs, and other various wounds were on her body. Her face had been beaten so severely that initial identification was not possible. She was transported to the office of the medical examiner 
and was soon identified as Suzanne Collins. The autopsy report stated, quote, Death was due to multiple injuries inflicted by blunt force trauma to the head, crushing wounds on the neck, and the insertion of 20.5 inches of a 31-inch long, 1.5-inch diameter, sharply beveled tree limb up into her perineum, the area between the anus and the vulva, through her abdomen into the right chest, tearing abdominal and chest organs, producing gross internal hemorrhaging, end quote. Suzanne had been alive when she was eviscerated by the tree limb that tore through her genitals, abdomen, stomach, and chest cavity, ripping apart all the soft tissues, organs, in her torso. Near midnight, the wanted car was spotted and stopped. The driver was identified as 29-year-old Sedley Ali. He told the officers he had been in a fight with his wife and was out driving to blow off some steam. His wife, Lynn, did resemble the description of Suzanne, so the police believed that maybe this was a case of mistaken identity. However, Allie's interviews with detectives quickly revealed that he was the one to attack Suzanne Collins in Orville Park. He would soon confess, and he said he was out drinking and driving after a fight with his wife when he saw the pretty blonde. He had driven close to her when he accidentally rammed her with his car. So he put her in the car with intention of taking her to the hospital. When Suzanne woke up and began yelling and accusing him of attacking her on purpose, which he says he didn't do, he panicked and hit her to keep her quiet. Not realizing he was holding a screwdriver in the hand that he hit her with. This is what killed Suzanne, but he said it was just a complete accident. He said he panicked even more after this, to the point that he got the idea to stage the scene to make it look like a sexual assault by removing her clothes and breaking off a tree limb to shove up into her body cavity. At the crime scene, police and sheriff's deputies saw that Suzanne's head was covered in blood, there were large bruises on each shoulder blade and the scratches that ran from her shoulders to her waist. Her left eye was swollen shut and there were contusions and bite marks on her left breast. Less than half a mile away, police found a screwdriver that matched the description of the one Allie described as his. When they examined his car, they found blood and blood stains, both inside and out. Now investigators would interview Sedley's wife, and then they learned that his first wife had died under some pretty suspicious circumstances. The investigation ruled this an accident when it first happened, but in fact, it was pretty questionable. The death occurred only three days after she filed for divorce on grounds of sexual perversion. Her nude body was found in the bathtub with numerous bruises and marks around her neck. Sedley said she had been out drinking with other men earlier in the evening. She then came home drunk, took a bath, and drowned to death. Her name was Deborah, and she was just 20 years old at the time of her death. 
She was in full rigor mortis by the time emergency services were summoned. The coroner ruled her death accidental, saying that she choked on her own vomit and had a french fry stuck in her throat. Suddenly had a history of violent outbursts against both his wives, often with his four-year-old child present to witness the abuse, which is very sad. Additional evidence against Sedley Alley as the murder of Suzanne Collins was obtained, and the assistant district attorney for Shelby County, Hank Williams, refused to even entertain talk of a plea bargain in this case. Due to the vicious manner of her senseless death, Williams would seek the death penalty. So you would think this is a pretty open and shut case, but just 10 days before his trial, his attorney submitted a report that claimed he was suffering from what was then called multiple personality disorder, which is now dissociative identity disorder. And this was 1986, and films like Sybil and The Three Faces of Eve brought knowledge to this rare disorder. Despite having confessed to this murder within hours of its occurrence, suddenly claimed to have no memory of his actions when examined by a psychiatrist in preparation for his trial. Upon hypnosis, he revealed the reason for his memory loss. His personality had been split into three separate personalities that night. There was the regular, himself. Then there was a female personality, called Billy. And then there was Death, who wore a black cape and was riding a white horse, keeping pace with his car as it drove along. The psychiatrist for the prosecution brought forth evidence to disprove the existence of multiple personality disorder in him. Not only is it a psychological response to horrific violence that occurred in early childhood, the child retreats to another personality to deal with the trauma but it occurs almost exclusively in girls who are sexually abused, not boys. And it doesn't just spring up out of nowhere around the time of a crime. Investigators presented evidence that he did not experience any kind of abuse, sexual or other, in his childhood. And his defense team did not say that he experienced this either. Further, there was no research to suggest the presence of this disorder in him. And there's also been no research that says that this makes a nonviolent person behave violently, meaning it is not possible for one personality of the bunch to be violent and have the violent one take over and do whatever it wants with the other personalities unaware and unable to restrain or control it. The jury returned with a guilty verdict in less than five hours and needed only two additional hours to decide on the death penalty for his horrendous, cruel murder. Suzanne Collins is buried in Arlington National Cemetery, the resting place of the country's most honored dead. So there you have episode 18, which is The Worst Ways to Die, part 1. Join me for next week, which will be part 2 of The Worst Ways to Die. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. 
If you have, if you could please leave a five-star review and a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and subscribe, that would really help the show out. Thank you so much for your support. If you have any ideas for upcoming cases, you can email me, truecrimeworks at gmail.com. And as always, you can send me a message on Instagram. I'm at truecrimeworks, and you will see my logo there. Also, be sure to follow me on Instagram. I check it pretty much every day. And that is all I have for today. So I hope you enjoyed the show, and I will talk to you next week for part two. Thank <laughs> you.